Well, talking about the basics, we are talking about foundational basics, and if you will, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, kind of going back over things that I already exposited, and to borrow from Abner Chow, I'm just going to call this a Lerman. It's not really a sermon, it's a Lerman. There's learning involved here, um, and some exegesis as well, and some exposition, but Last week I looked at identity. I'm, I'm kind of hung up on identity, and we're talking about identity right now. And last week I talked about identity from a broad and a general perspective of who we are as human beings. And what I presented contradicts contemporary thought when it comes to identity. People are confused today. And that's because the world has moved away from the biblical explanation of humanity and they have replaced the Bible's explanation with their own explanation of what humanity is. The Bible, right from the very beginning, identifies human beings as creatures, first and foremost. Uh, We have not created ourselves. He is our creator. And so we are creatures in the truest sense and we're created by an all-powerful and sovereign creator, God. The Bible tells us that human beings were created in God's image, the Imago Dei, which means that we were created to reflect God. Now, people maybe wonder, how do I glorify God? How do I glorify God? Well, I can tell you one way to glorify God is if you are male, okay, then be male. If you are female, then be female. And find out what the Bible says about the characteristics of a male, and the characteristics of a female. Because in that way, you will be reflecting the image of God because he has created you in his image, male and female, he created them. That's not hard, is it? Um, Sometimes we wonder what that word glorify means. It means reflect, to reflect the image of God that he created us in. And so, right from the very beginning, he tells us what he expects of us. The Bible tells us that we are living, personal, self-conscious people, and we act with individual personality, which is to say God provides us with identity. God gives us our identity. Now, there are at least three faculties that I went over last week. I'm not going to belabor this, but I do want to review it, that God endowed human beings with that are more observed or not observed to the same degree in in other created animals and so forth, other creatures that God created. These three are really seen to come to the fore in humanity. We possess intellect. That's a reflection of the image of God, the rationality and creativity of God. Human beings have the capacity for cognitive thinking and, and to come from the person of God. God is a thinking God. He has a plan that he put together with the other members of the Trinity before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. And his plan is being carried out. He is a thinking person, and we are rational thinking creatures. We have memory, imagination, and language skills with the ability to understand others, and we can communicate with others using those innate skills that he gave us to speak. And we can create, which reflects the creativity of our creator God, whether it be in music or whether it be in in poetry or 
prose or, or writing or whatever. When we create, we are reflecting God's image. So we have an intellect. We also are moral creatures reflecting the holiness of God. Mankind was created innocent in original righteousness. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, before the fall, were in original righteousness. We possess a conscience with which either commends or condemns our thoughts and our actions. And the fact that we have a conscience is a witness to the vestige of our original righteousness. Now, the conscience is a faculty that can be heightened or hardened. It can be heightened through education. The more we study the Word of God, the more heightened our conscience becomes to good and evil. But it can also be seared. It can be brought down low to where it's barely functioning because of practice. When we practice the corruptions of sin, um, our conscience becomes seared and we no longer can depend upon it. I've heard it said that just from natural creation, the created world around us, we can know that there is a God, but even that knowledge we suppress in unrighteousness. And so the very knowledge that there is a God as we look at creation is enough to convict us, but it is not enough to convert us. To convert us, we need more than natural revelation. We need special revelation, which is the revealed will of God in his word. And through the revealed will of God, then we can see the Bible. We can come under conviction of our sin. And he tells us what to do with that. So intellect, create it moral. We also have been created with the capacity for affection, which reflects the love of God. Human beings are capable of love, and therefore we worship that which we love, don't we? Worship is the act of placing worth in someone other than we ourselves or in things. The Imago Dei was deeply affected by Adam's rebellion toward God and his ensuing sin. And God's image in man was marred, but it was not obliterated. And there's a, a vestige of God's image in even the most wicked of people, and that remaining memory of his image makes mankind as a crown of his creation exceptional, unique, and it gives each individual dignity and value. I mean, so much so that James even condemns anyone from cursing another human being based on the fact that they've been created in the image of God. Wow. And yet we wantonly sacrifice babies in the womb, all human beings. In the exultant wisdom of God and his eternal plan, he sent his son to be a satisfaction for the penalty of that sin that passed on all men because all have sinned and Fallen short of the glory of God, we no longer reflect the glory of God unless there's a radical transformation that takes place in us called salvation. And those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin become regenerate, renewed, born again, if you will. And in that regeneration, God begins to do something. God is recreating 
fallen humans into a new people, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is the old is passed away. He's a new creature. And behold, new things have come. Adam and Eve lived in original righteousness, but they forfeited that when they sinned. And Paul tells us that God, in regeneration of forgiven sinners, he's restoring them with righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. No, it's not original righteousness, but it sure is reminiscent of it. In Colossians 3.10, we read this simple verse talking about the new self. And have we have put on the new self. If we have trusted Christ, we've put on the new self who is being renewed. It's process. And it's, it's ongoing. And it's present tense. Being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So that's the knowledge piece. And in Ephesians 4.24, we have the righteousness and holiness. It says in 4.24, talking about the new self again, and you have put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation from the punishment of sin and we become a new creature in Christ, we begin a process called sanctification. And that process is ongoing from the day that we believe until the day that it's perfected when we are glorified, either when we're raptured or when we return to heaven and receive our resurrected bodies. And our bodies will be just like that of Jesus Christ when he was resurrected and glorified. So that was last week's sermon Righteousness and holiness and knowledge. The three elements reflect God's original righteousness in Adam, which was lost through Adam's sin and now regained in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is really important. Romans tells us that if you are not in Christ, you are none of his. Ephesians, the first chapter, is just filled with what happens when you're in Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. This is a moral image of God in man or in humanity. And it allows us to reflect or glorify him as we ought. What is the purpose of man? The Westminster Catechism asks, what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. People are running all over the place trying to find out what their purpose is. And they're depressed and in distress because they cannot discover what their purpose is. They try one thing after another, and it comes up zip. Well, you see, how do we get now from this general fact that we are human beings created in the image of God, all imprinted with that imago Dei, how do we get from there to individual identity? Okay, you might say, well, I buy in with that whole thing of that yeah, we've been created in the image of God. That's cool. It sounds good. It gives me value and dignity. But what does that mean to me individually and my identity as a human being, but an individual human being? As Steve Linetti. What does that mean for me? Well, the Bible simply and clearly sets a binary. 
Binary means only two on his creation of human beings. Scripture is filled with a binary. I just mentioned one. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either living or you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're either in darkness of your sin or you're in the light of a renewed mind. It's just throughout the Scripture, this binary idea. And this is no different. God declares the creation of our first parents, and then he moves into the individual identity of each of them as being male and female. Let's pray. Father, as we move into this section, we just pray for clarity. Um, it, it is not a con- it's not a convoluted element of understanding here, but Father, there's so much going around in our contemporary culture that many are confused. Very, very confused. So, Father, we pray that the clarity of your word would shine through and that we would be able to see the difference. It really does come down to worldview, whether we are submitted to your view of the world that you've shown us and displayed to us in your revealed will of the Bible or our own personal worldview that we create ourselves. And, Father, therein lies all the confusion. So we pray for clarity. We pray that your Holy Spirit will just anoint this time and that we will see much fruit from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first question, and and this is an honest question that I came up with before I began to research it. Um, I knew what I wanted to talk about, and I was really struggling with, are there two sexes or one sex and many genders? Okay, that's a question that we have to answer. And the Bible is categorical when it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible simply and clearly sets a binary of his creation of human beings. Human beings are male and female. And that's it. Now you say, well, okay, so is that the end of your sermon? Hardly. Hardly. In Genesis 2 7, the Bible provided more detail as to God's creation of the man from the dust of the ground. And in 2.22, the Bible describes God's creation of the woman, saying, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. How is it then? that presently there are over 100 different variations of gender? I ask you. And that was my question. Where did this come from? How, how did we begin to understand gender as being the way it's understood today in contemporary society? Research from sexualdiversity.org found that there are 107 different types of genders that have been identified. It's kind of like dot, dot, dot after that. It's the plus on LGBTQ, plus, because they ain't done yet. It's, it's an ongoing situation. Could say it's in the present tense, right? One strand in the answer has to do with the two nouns and their definitions, okay? The etymology of the terms sex and gender. Now, sex, when we... Say sex, I want you to understand that we're talking about 
it in the in the in the sense of that you might fill out an application and in the application for a job or a loan or whatever it says sex male female okay that's what I'm talking about sex when I say sex and then we have gender okay so I want to trace the etymology of these two nouns because therein lies the confusion of today when did the nouns sex and gender which were once synonymous, become separate with different definitions for each. Today, the term sex talks of a male and a female, and it refers specifically to the biological sex assigned at birth in conjunction with the biological and genetic makeup of the individual, XX or XY. Yes, there are intersex people, and there is some abnormalities that come in genetically, but those are abnormalities. And I believe intersex uh, human beings, the the percentage is at 0.02%. Okay, so that is not a, a huge segment of the population that are born that way. And intersex means that they have a, a confusion of genitalia, Okay and some other things that can be genetically also. But gender now has come to identify behavior. Not biology, behavior, which is linked to whatever gender a person identifies with personally. And it has definitely moved beyond the binary, distinct, and given by the Creator. At one time, the not too distant past, sex and gender were synonymous terms and used interchangeably to identify the biological and physical identity of a male and female person. To reference this, I just want to read two quotes so that you can kind of get the idea of what's going on here. Quote, Until relatively recently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM, used by psychiatrists and psychologists, okay, had classified the transgender experience as a gender identity disorder. A disorder. An abnormality, okay? But in 2013, the DSM-5 removed this experience from its list of disorders and replaced it with the term gender dysphoria. Dysphoria means discomfort, okay? It did this in part to remove the stigma from the transgender experience so that transgender people would not have to say that they had a psychological disorder. Now, according to the American Psychological Association, APA, gender identity refers to a person's internal sense. Listen. Gender refers to a person's internal sense of being male, female, or something else. This is the APA's statement here. Gender expression refers to the way a person communicates gender identity to others through behavior, clothing, hairstyles, voice, or body characteristics. Transgender is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive, perceive, right? You're back to that internal sense, might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. Okay, So this is 1,000% acceptable in the medical world now. 
and in the world of psychology and psychiatry. Second quote, quote, In human sex determination, in human sex determination is a process that determines the biological sex of an offspring and as a result the sexual characteristics that they will develop. Humans typically develop as either male or female, primarily depending on the combination of sex chromosomes that they inherit from their parents. The human sex chromosomes, called X and Y, are structures in human cells. Humans who inherit two X chromosomes, XX, typically develop as females, while humans with X and Y chromosomes typically develop as males. Sex determination is the beginning of the development of many characteristics that influence how human, how the humans look and function as well as the societal expectations that other humans have for each other. But that's kind of passe now. That's kind of past. We're into a whole new world. Now, these matters are crucial, folks. Otherwise, I wouldn't be teaching them and, and talking to you about them. They are relevant, and they are very contemporary. Just last Wednesday, I read an article, and this is a quote from that article. The NPR, PBS, NewsHour, and Marist Poll, released Wednesday, found that 61% of Americans, listen, 61% of Americans, which is up 10% from a year ago, 10% from a year ago, say defining gender as the sex listed on a person's original birth certificate is the only way to define male and females in society. I would agree with that statement. I'd be part of that 61%. 53% of 18 to 34-year-olds believe that gender is based on birth sex, and then 63%, as compared to 61 of Americans across the board, 63% of adults 55 to 64 years of age believe that gender is based on sex assigned at birth. Now, I love that word assigned because what the world will tell us is the doctor assigns it. No, I'm sorry, that is not the fact. God assigns that at birth. The doctor just describes what he sees, <laughs> okay? And in the sense of intersex, there's often genetic tests that usually prove one or the other, even though the genitalia may be mixed up, an abnormality. What happened then? What happened if, we're, if, if, if this is the previous consensus? Well, I'm sorry, but I need to go to a, a longer quote because I've read a lot of stuff on this. And believe me, I'm only giving you the tip of the iceberg. And I, I, I hope it's helpful to you. So here's the history of the changing meaning of the noun sex and gender because this is where everything, this is a pivot point. Early uses of the word gender in reference to men or women tended to view it as one and the same as biological sex. There was no difference between sex and gender. Interchangeable. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, that's that one that takes up, you know, a whole shelf of library space. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word gender has been used as early as the 1300s to describe categories of people. The Oxford English Dictionary and its earliest record of using the word 
is specifically referring to men and women, though it did not occur until 1474, when someone used it in a letter to describe what the writer refers to as the masculine gender. So as early as the 1300s, and the first instance that they have in a letter written where they have a copy of it was 1474, gender and sex was interchangeable. Over the next centuries, when gender was used to refer to men and women, it was often synonymous with biological sex. However, (laughs) in the 1950s, gender psychologists who studied differences between the sexes began to reframe gender as something entirely separate from biological sex. There's the answer to my question. When did gender separate out from sex and become having its own meaning. It says it started in the 50s. In 1955, a psychologist was the first to use the word gender to mean something separate from biological sex. He defined a gender role as all the ways a person discloses themselves as being a man or a woman. Well, we haven't quite gotten into transgenderism yet, but in the 50s, it was as a man or a woman. 1964, another psychologist asserted that cultures determine gender rather than biology. Okay, they assert it. Based on what? Well, based on their observations. Observations of what? Previously, it would be abnormalities. But now, they're beginning to bring it into mainstream thought as normal. They asserted that culture determines gender rather than biology, and that that same year was the first time the term gender identity appeared, 1964. First time gender identity appeared in writing. They now began to define gender identity as a person's internal sense. There's that word again. Their their feeling. They define gender role as a behavior one exhibits in society around other people. The newly defined term gender was now used to help those who needed distinctions between biological characteristics and psychological ones. They were helping these people that had these struggles, and this is how they were helping them. They changed the meaning of the word gender. In the late 1960s and early 70s, feminists got into the fray and described gender as a socially imposed division of the sexes used to oppress women. So we moved into that direction. In the 1990s, gender began to be seen as a spectrum rather than a binary. So they know what they're doing. They know what it originally was, a binary, and they're saying, no, it's actually a spectrum here. And that a person's gender is not fixed at birth. Well, you can say that, but by what right? (laughs) You you know, you can say anything. And that's just about what's happening, isn't it? In the 2000s and 2000, up to 2010, saw the creation of such terms as non-binary, agender, gender fluid, to just capture a few different ways people can experience and interact with gender. And as of 2022, just last year, non-binary is generally used as an umbrella term that describes people who may not feel comfortable, dysphoria, okay? Strictly identifying as a man or a woman. 
Presently, contemporary thinking, that's the end of the quote, contemporary thinking and more importantly and more, even more legislatively, we're being told that everything's based on a belief that because gender and biological sex were both binary categories fixed at birth, they have contributed to the oppression of women and gender-diverse people in the U.S. for centuries now. So we're turning over a new leaf because of that oppression. And, you know, if I wanted, if I wanted to go into Marxism now, I could do that, where you have the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, all this stuff... I'm sorry, the further you get away from this, the more you get into a whole lot of other stuff. The divine binary, point two. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 126 is clear. There are only two designations regarding his creation of human beings. One is male, the other is female. Now, this is referred to as binary. The Bible is clear, simple, and easy to understand. It's not hard to understand. That's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Easy to understand. It is when people reject God's definitions and begin to redefine the biblical norms, so many ideas and definitions make these matters complex and confusing. The relationship between the male and the female is defined in Scripture for us. When looking at Genesis and the text that I've been reading, the male and female are responsible to come together for which they were physically equipped in their unique creation. And according to one twenty-eight, Genesis one twenty-eight, they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is right in the whole context of being created in, as male and female in the image of God. Now that is not all that we have been created to do because this series is going to be followed up by creation mandates, and I'm going to talk about creation mandates. There's more that we have been given to do by God, but the truth of the matter is, in this context of the creation of the binary male and female, they have something to do, and they've been specifically um, uh, gifted with the physical ability to obey that command. We know through our biology classes in school that the male is a donor and the female is a receptor. You cannot understand how much struggle I went through trying to bring this down to language that would not be offensive. And in a mixed multitude here, okay? In the process of reproduction, you need a donor and a receptor. Neither the male nor female is able to reproduce on their own. They can't. Nor is the male able to be the receptor or the female, the donor. It doesn't work like that. Biologically, physically, there is ample evidence for the divine binary. Well, okay, so we're not biologists. I mean, you hear this all the time. I'm not a physician, so I can't say COVID is good or bad. Okay, okay. How about in electrical and mechanical trades? Each half of a pair of mating connectors or fasteners is conventionally assigned the designation male and female. The receptacle, you plug the plug into the receptacle. How about in plumbing? Fittings are male or female. You screw the pipes together. There is a male pipe and there is a female pipe. 
I'm telling you what, and, and of course, we are beginning to try to change our language with pronouns now. Good luck with that. The they goes into the he, or uh, no, there is no he anymore. So uh, you see, we're, we're on really thin ice here, folks. Well, I want to give an explanation for all this confusion. And I, I don't believe that I'm, I'm being pedantic, simplifying it beyond simplicity. I believe that this is very important. The problem is a clash of worldviews. That's simply what it is. We'll never understand what's happening in our culture and how what has been considered normal and now been overturned until we realize that we're experiencing the consequences of this clash of worldviews. One is willingly submitted to God and his authority. Okay? One worldview is submitted to the authority of God's word. The other worldview is not. It just patently is not. It is in rebellion against that worldview. And it's very obvious. The Bible is a meta narrative. What I mean by that is it provides a cohesive view of history stretching from eternity past through the creation of the universe and all the way into eternity future. It's the whole ball of wax right here in the Bible. It's a meta narrative. It's the plan of God, and it operates within the parameters and under his sovereignty. It is from the Bible that I've been explaining the divine binary, that God created humanity in the beginning, male and female, and he created him in his image, which means that they are to reflect God, and we should do that in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. And part of God's plan for the man and the woman was to procreate and fill the world. He especially endowed them physically to be able to fulfill that command. And this is the worldview of the Bible regarding humanity created male and female with a purpose to reflect God by living in harmony with his will and procreating. At least in that context right there. There's more to it, like I said, but that is a basic one. Now, on the other hand, there is another worldview And it's a great breakaway of humanity from God and his plan. It actually started in Genesis chapter 3, which someday we will actually get to. (laughs) And I think by the time we get to it, you'll just go, check, got it, let's move on. You see, that great breakaway of humanity from God, which began in Genesis chapter 3, is referred to, I think, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is a great apostasy. And I wonder, are we there? You know, I think I, in the past, have always reasoned, well, that's apostasy from the church. You know, that um, there not many people are going to go to church. And how about not many people are going to even admit that there is a God or that he has any control over them at all? If the whole world goes that way, I would say that would be a great falling away, wouldn't you? And maybe we're there, which means that's written in the context of Second Thessalonians uh, right when the Antichrist will be revealed and the rapture will have taken place and we will be in heaven. So I think we're close. I really do. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and the result and consequence experienced by Adam and Eve were passed down to their children, and so on. It's called original sin. The fall changed everything. So now sin corrupts humanity so that God, who created us in 
original righteousness, we are no longer originally righteous. We have original sin. Every human being born since the fall have been born in iniquity and with the result and consequences being lived out in their lives. Now, now here's the thing. The world tells us that our identity is found in what we desire. So to deny the fulfillment of what you desire is to deny your truest self, your authentic self. You're living by your feelings. The idea is that you are what you feel. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I'm sure many of you may be familiar with this little song, and and boy, am I going to get in trouble for this one. It's Elsa's anthem in Frozen, Let It Go. Listen to the words to this thing, and, 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 and be aware that your children love this, okay? Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Your children are listening to that people. And it, it, it's, it's framed in the most beautiful, enticing pictures. And it's sung magnificently. It is an anthem. How different from that. All I can do, all I am, all the limits and temptations, I'm free. What about lay it all down, lay it all down, lay it all down at the feet of Jesus? Do you see the difference in worldviews here? It's black and white, and it's getting stronger. It's no wonder the song and the character of Elsa have become a favorite of the LGBTQ community. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. When a person says, this is what I feel, so this is what I should do, and if you tell me I can't do that, or that I should be something or someone other than I feel myself to be, you are attacking the very heart of my personhood. Remember that when you're talking to folks about the gospel. Because that's what you will get back. Who are you to judge me? And you need to be able to have an answer for that. The answer is, I'm not judging you. I'm just repeating what is in God's word. You don't have me to deal with. Don't worry about me. I'm nobody. But the God that wrote this book is somebody. And we're told in here that one day we're all going to stand before him. So that's why I'm sharing with you, because I love you. I don't hate you. There's an aesthetic account, uh, effect of man's ability to reason. Remember I said we're irrational creatures created in God's image? The fall affected the way we think, okay? Especially in the area of morals. Sin, in effect, brought about the fact that we can be deceived, self-deceived, by our feelings, especially when they're totally contrary to biological and physical reality. Can the subjective feelings of a fallen human being be trusted? Living out the worldview and rebellion to God This is a very clear demonstration of the noetic effects of sin. One of the greatest, noetic just means uh, your mind, your nose, your your thinking abilities, your brain. 
One of the greatest corruptions that sin brings with it is the consequence, uh, as a consequence of sin is self-deception. Jeremiah 17.9 says, When someone still is in rebellion to God, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the heart. That's the thought processes. That's where everything comes out of. And in the unregenerate person, it's, it's wicked. It's a rebellion against God. And so therefore, when they look at Genesis 1.26 through 28, they reject the simple, straightforward clarity of the Bible. And they never stop to consider that what they feel could and very often is deceptive, that they've deceived themselves. If a person's body says male while the brain says female, the brain is wrong. This is truth, folks. In a fallen world where sin corrupts our mind as well as our bodies, what we think about ourselves can be mistaken. And how arrogant to think we've got the final say on reality. And this is certainly the case with transgender experience. The distinction between male and female is first of all biological And the biological distinctions in view had to do with the body's organization for reproduction, quite apart from any consideration of brain structures. Now let me leave you with two verses to consider as we've looked at the cost of learning or leaning on our own understanding and disregarding our creator God's revelation in the Bible. The first is Judges 17.6. You can just write this down. In those days, there was no king. There was no sovereign Okay, in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the world today. There is no sovereign over men because men have become their own gods. So they're doing what's right in their own eyes. The second verse is Proverbs fourteen twelve, and this is crucial. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. May God give us the enabling grace to come under his sovereign reign through Jesus Christ and may we just let it all drop at the feet of Jesus because we're in a battle. (laughs) It is raging. You might feel on the fringes. We're right in the thick of it, folks. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the way that you have so clearly delineated these things to us. Give us the faith and the courage to believe and to stand on these truths, Lord. And give us a heart of mercy and a heart of love and compassion for those that are caught up in um, just self-deception. And Father, help us to reason with them and to show them the love that God has displayed through the offering of his Son. And Father, may we be able to win some for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.